The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we're working week in and week out to make sure that you have the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And today, just to prep you guys for what you what you have available to you today, we're going to talk about the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program, which is a topic that... Man, I get a lot of questions about that. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what it is and what it does and how you how you can use it and have an expert in the studio today who can answer those questions for you. So if you're one of the many folks who has questions, you might want to call them in at 877-772-9658. Again, you can call in live if you're listening on Wednesday at 5 o'clock and not on the podcast. <laughs> Sometimes people like hear the podcast and they'll call the station and say, yeah, I had a question for Vina and the show was like six weeks earlier. So if you're listening on Wednesday at five to the live show on WMKV, then you can call in with a question at 877-772-9658 or you can send it via email at askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Please, 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 if you're writing in with your question, tell us where you're writing from. Because it makes a difference sometimes with these programs, what part of the world you might be in. For folks who are in the greater Cincinnati area, there's a exciting meeting coming up tomorrow night at the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati. It is an entire meeting all for people who have jobs and are trying to build a real estate business while they have jobs. And I think this is the first time we've ever done a meeting specifically addressing those issues at six o'clock. You can listen to Miss Anita Johnson talk about uh, how she has built a business that involves some wholesaling and some rental properties and some other sorts of things while working really more than full time. Uh, And then at seven o'clock, we've got Robert Mohan, the fellow who apparently hijacked the show about a month ago, uh, who is a successful real estate investor from the Nashville area who um, still works job to this day, uh, but he's going to address how to use um, improved credit and some real inside secrets to uh, get better money from banks than you are probably getting right now. He just did this presentation yesterday in Columbus, I, I sat through it, took lots of notes, learned lots of things, packed house. People loved it. So if you can get to the one in Cincinnati tomorrow night, the information is at CincinnatiRIA.com, CincinnatiREIA.com. You can download yourself a free first-time guest pass if you've never been before. You can RSVP if you're a member. 
and we hope to see you there. My guest today is Alicia Morlatt, who is the Senior Program Manager at the Housing Choice Voucher Program at Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority. Uh, She's been there for 17 years. She's worked as the assistant to the HCV director and the assistant manager of occupancy and the assistant manager of admissions and a housing specialist. And what she really enjoys is the day-to-day activity assisting families who need affordable housing to work with the agencies and landlords that partner with the Metropolitan Housing Authority. Uh, sitting right here in the studio with me is Alicia Morlatt. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you for having me. I'm so I'm so glad to have you here. It's been um, it's been a really long time since we addressed Section Eight on this show, and uh, it it changes over time. Like the program changes. I, I mean, literally, I think it's been a decade <laughs> since anybody from CMHA has been here. So um, very pleased to have you. And I'd like to start out just with kind of kind of like a history of the program and what, what, why was it started? What was it for? Like, wh- wh- where did all this begin? Um, it first became housing for people coming out of um, the wars, um, for soldiers needing housing when they returned to the United States. Um, and then it developed into a low-income housing program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is going back Decades. I mean, probably 1940s or 50s. Yes, about then. Um, it did um, change over to where there was public housing, and that's pretty much where all the housing programs started, where the housing authority owned and controlled the property and rented the property to families who needed assistance. Then the voucher program came about where it allowed families to go out into the private market and use subsidy in a private landlord's unit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... It's it it is a program wherein people who qualify for it, and we'll talk about who those people are a little bit later, um, are offered the opportunity to kind of choose where they want to live. And uh, there's some other stuff that has to happen that yes. we will that we will uh, talk about a little bit later. But then, uh, effectively, the program pays for a big chunk of their monthly living expenses. Not not all of it, typically. That's correct. Um, a family has to pay between 30% of their adjusted monthly income to not exceed 40% of their adjusted gross income when they first move into a unit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After they're in a unit, there are different rules that apply. Okay. Okay. So from the from the perspective of just just the operation of the program, this is another thing that I think people get confused about there's a federal part and then it's administered locally so so how how does that work um cmha gets our funding from hud and hud gets their funding from congress Um, we administer the program locally um in the cincinnati area um and follow hud regulation we are also required to follow certain state laws and city laws Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with regards to fair housing and um, lease administration okay okay so Let's let's talk first from the perspective of the tenant or potential tenant. How how does the program work from their side? Um, do you mean how do they come on to the program? Yeah, how do they come on to it? And then once they have come on to it, how do they go about finding a place to live? Okay. Well, to get on the program, as you can imagine, um, is is rather difficult. Not there's a lot of need in Cincinnati in in the area um, and we cannot 
house all of the clients who we should or could be able to serve because of our funding levels. Um, there is a high level of poverty in Cincinnati. Um, a lot of bigger cities like Chicago, New York, they have the same type of issue. In Cincinnati, we open our wait list about once every three years. Ooh. And when we do open the list, which we just did a few weeks ago, we get an overwhelming response um, and applications. Um, so when we open the wait list, we open the wait list for four days, um, and we got over 13,000 applications. We had advertised that we were only going to take 6,500 clients um, or applicants um, so we can make sure that we can still open the wait list in another three years. Mm-hmm. Um, we do not get 6,500 new vouchers. It is a wait list, which means that we cannot pull people from that list until we have an open spot on our program. Mm-hmm. So what happens is people apply when the wait list is open, um, and then they wait. And when they get to the top of the list, they get invited in for a screening process to make sure that they're qualified for our program. Um, there is an in- income limit element where they have to be within 50% um, of the area medium income. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are some local screenings that we require, um, you know, that we apply based on our administrative plan um, at the time that they wait and make to the top of the list. There's other elements, like they cannot owe, owe a balance to CMHA or HUD um, or another PHA program. Um, and then once they reach that, once they go through that screening process, then we brief them on how the program works. And then we issue them a voucher. And we do provide 90 days in Hamilton County. However, um, HUD only requires that they get 60 days to find housing. Mm-hmm. And then they would seek housing. <laughs> okay. So so this, this, this you say uh, you give 90 days for the voucher, meaning that within 90 days, they have to have found, found and gotten qualified a property? No, they only have to find the property and submit the request for tenancy approval, which is called the RTA. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if they don't, then what happens? Then their voucher expires, and they will have to reapply when the waitlist opens again. Wow. So it is a big deal. That's a lot of time pressure. It is. For you and them. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine trying to screen even 6,500 people <laughs> over over the course of that, that time frame. I mean, think about that, landlords. That's like if you had to go through and do tenant screenings on 6,500 people, <laughs> if, you can, if you can imagine that. All right, so when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about how the process works from the point of view of our listeners, who are typically going to be the housing providers in this situation, as well as things like how does the voucher program determine how much rent they are willing to pay for your unit, and uh, what the process for getting your uh, unit approved once you have located a potential Section 8 tenant. All of that and more right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones-Cox. My guest today is, I'm going to, I'm going to pronounce this right. I'm so afraid of getting the syllables in your, in your last name wrong. Uh, This is Alicia Morlatt Mm -hmm. from uh, CMHA, Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing Authority. She is the Senior Program Manager for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, commonly known in the real estate community as Section 8. That's not actually the official name of it. It's actually called the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Uh, we are taking your calls and questions at 877-772-9658 or 
at askvina at gmail.com. If you'd prefer to email it in, that's fine. Askvina at gmail.com is the email address. So we talked uh, about the challenges uh, from the tenant side, uh, which mainly consists of there's more people who feel like they need the program than you can possibly uh, service with the amount of funding that you have. From the position of the person who's going to be providing the housing, what does the program look like? Uh, so t- typically, the way it comes up in our office is someone calls and says, do you take Section 8? And we, we sort of go from there. But I think a lot of people who've never done it before go, I don't know, do I? <laughs> um, in order to take Section 8, it's a very simple process. Um, you would have to first find a tenant who has a voucher. So the tenant has to have the assistance. A lot of times we'll get calls from landlords who are concerned about one of their tenants that they've had for a while, and they're like disabled or they've just lost a job, and they want to recommend that person for our program. But as I said earlier, um, they have to apply when the waitlist is open. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be a landlord, you're in a very good position because almost always a landlord's going to qualify for our program. All they have to do is be willing to rent the Section 8 unit or willing to rent to the Section 8 tenant and follow the rules of our program. Um, We do a lot in Cincinnati to educate landlords. Um, We have landlord orientations every other Tuesday um, that they can register for on our website under our calendar. Um, We do Marketing Monday events, which are free events whenever we have a briefing on Mondays from 2.30 to 4. And that's local. That's Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of housing authorities um, do a lot of outreach with landlords. Mm-hmm. But to be a landlord on our program, you would, again, have to fill out the RTA for a client who has a voucher. Then the RTA will be processed by the housing authority. There are a couple checks that we have to do. Um, in Cincinnati, we do what's called a landlord background check. We're looking to make sure that the owner really owns the property. Um, there's no open city orders. There's no taxes owed on the property. That's for Cincinnati. Some housing authorities don't do that. Some housing authorities do different types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the required background checks that we're required to do is one um, we are required to do an affordability check to make sure that 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 gross rent of that unit which is the rent of the unit and the tenant paid utilities does not exceed more than 40 percent of the tenants adjusted gross income if it does then the rent has to be lowered then we also do what's called a rent reasonable test which that's the one that's a little more harder to explain because that's not a set mathematical equation that I can write out for you. Mm -hmm. Um, That is doing a comparison of other units that have the same market value as that property. Um, Once it passes rent reasonable, then we do what's called an HQS inspection. And we actually provide our landlords the HQS um, checklist Mm -hmm. on the back of every RTA that we give out. So it's real simple. You just look back and say, okay, this is what we're going out and then checking for. Um, And then if it passes all three checks, then we're talking about a move-in date for the client. Once the client moves in and takes possession of the unit, then the contract element comes in. We're required to collect a residential lease um, that matches what's on the RTA, the rent, the utilities that the family has to pay. There's a few other things, the address of the unit, things that you would typically find in a lease. And then they are required to sign a HAP contract, which outlines the expectations of the owner for our program. And then there's a tenancy addendum. Now, we require the tenancy addendum also be signed off on by the landlord and the tenant. However, that's a standalone document from HUD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> a couple of things from what you, from the, what you just said. Um, 
you you mentioned that uh, if the if the rent exceeds or the rent plus the utilities that they're expected to pay exceeds uh, 40% of the if the tenant's portion is more than 40% of the AGI, then the, the rent has to be lowered. Um, and I'm afraid what people heard was, I'm forced to lower my rent because I got into this process. You uh, are not. That is not that that is incorrect. You can just say nope. Um, you know, I I really feel like market rent is what I'm asking, and so I'm going to have to unfortunately move on. Now I know that sometimes causes problems for the folks with the vouchers because they're day 89 maybe at this point of their. Well, actually, HUD requires that we toll the voucher, which means that when the RTA comes in, their time stops. Ah. So let's say that the family had 40 days left on their voucher when the RTA was received, and it took us maybe two weeks, three weeks to get to the point where the landlord either says, you know what, I don't want to rent this unit, or maybe they found a market rent client that's, that is willing to pay the market rent, mm-hmm. or maybe they just decided they don't want to put the property on the market right now. Mm-hmm. Then what would happen is when that's canceled, those 40 days would be returned to the tenant. Ah, oh, good, good, good. Okay. And the other question that came up for me was, uh, I mean, you just named a lot of stuff that has to happen. And, and, and by the way, folks, seriously, the housing authorities will teach you how to do this. This is not, you don't have to figure this out for yourself. You don't have to try and Google it and look at all the blog posts from people who say, well, I tried to do this and it took 10 weeks and get all frustrated because that could have been user error. That could have been the the landlord not turning in the RTA. I mean, you, you don't know you don't know exactly what happened. You the, mo- most of these housing authorities will either like hold live classes or they have pretty detailed instructions about the order in which things have to happen. Um, so don't get all confused and go, well, I didn't understand that, so I'm not I'm not doing this. Um, but it, typically, assuming everything like comes in on time as it's supposed to, how how long does this process take? It can take, it depends. In Cincinnati, we have a thing called RTA Express, um, where we'll process an RTA Monday through Thursday, and while the family or the landlord waits in the lobby, we'll process it through all three steps up to the inspection. So the inspection will be scheduled within 48 hours, and we'll get back out, inspect the unit. If it passes, then we are ready to go to contracts. In, if you do a traditional RTA with our agency, it can take up to, we can take up to 15 days, calendar days, to get from the RTA submission to inspection. Mm-hmm. That's provided that the rent didn't have to be adjusted, the RTA is filled out correctly. Um, but as you mentioned, um, our housing authority is one of those housing authorities that will do a lot to help a new landlord come onto the program. Like I said, we have the landlord orientations with Ms. Miranda Taylor every other Tuesday. If you can't make those sessions, she'll make a private one-on-one appointment for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we do the Marketing Monday events, so mm-hmm. we are there on site because you come to our office, and we help with that process. And then we also offer the Express, which, again, it's, that's local to Cincinnati, but even then we're helping landlords go through the RTA process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the inspection because I think that is the thing that probably causes the most consternation <laughs> amongst, amongst well, probably you guys and <laughs> the housing providers. Um, there, there is a list and it says, this is what we need to see be true. And then the inspector comes and maybe he sees some some things that he because uh, it's not detailed to the level of every single possible thing because it would be a book if you if you did that so maybe the inspector comes through and says well actually I see four things here that we would need to see them corrected before we could approve this property what happens at that point um, we allow the landlord to have 15 days to make the repairs 
Um, however, if you do it earlier or sooner than that, we will be more than happy to come out faster than that. Um, we actually have a dedicated person that does nothing but new transfers or new people moving into units. That's all she does in schedules, most of her, her um, shift at our office. So, again, we do try to make that process as fast as possible because the whole idea behind our housing authority is to house. Um, it's better for the landlord, and it's really nice for our applicants and our families that are, that are currently homeless or even in a, in a dire situation. We're trying to get them through the process as fast as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then one of the things that y- you alluded to rules, you alluded to that the, well, both the, the landlord and the tenant agree to certain rules. Uh, and one of those things that someone who's housing a, a housing choice voucher tenant uh, agrees to is a reinspection annually. In Cincinnati, um, we do biannual inspections. So we actually only come out to the property once every other year, unless there's a complaint or emergency or the unit selected randomly for quality control. However, some housing authorities still work on the annual because it is an, you, you can option out to the biannual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, you probably don't have the exact number at your fingertips, but uh, do you have a feel for how many how many properties just fly through the biannual inspection versus how many are required to now go back and do things again? I don't have the exact number, but it's well over 50% that passed the first time out. Okay. Okay. Very good. So um, any other examples of rules that I would be asked to follow as a housing voucher choice landlord, housing choice voucher landlord? There's so many acronyms here. I'm just going to say HCV and CMHA from here on out. any other examples of rules that might surprise me if I had never, if I'd just been used to running to market tenants and had not? Um, one thing that's kind of odd or, or unique is a landlord cannot rent to a relative. Um, so that's prohibited. Um, one of the other little oddities is the HAP um, contract terminates if you have a single occupant who dies mm. in the month in which they pass. There's not a 30 day pass through to the owner for those types of situations. And I know I get that question quite commonly from landlords when they have that situation. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen too too, too very often. That's a- it, it doesn't, <laughs> but that's the number one thing that landlords get confused about, I would say. Um, when that happens, they expect a 30-day notice. Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about uh, some of the advantages of being a housing provider for the Housing Choice Voucher Program, and we're also going to take your questions. You can either call them in at 877-772-9658, or you can send them to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking Section 8 today. My guest is Alicia Morlot, and you guys are always asking me Section 8 questions when she's not here. <laughs> and I go, I don't know, call Section 8. And this is your big day to get the questions that you've had sort of in the back of your head answered. You can do that at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Again, that's A-S-K, V like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com, because she is the person that, man, if she didn't have the answer, she will be able to tell you where to get it. So let's talk about some, you've already mentioned some of the advantages to the rental housing providers in 
providing se- uh, Section 8 housing. And here here in Cincinnati, we're just lucky that you guys do do so many so many classes. And um, I mean, you guys even do like trainings on Saturdays about not just Section 8, but like, how do you manage properties? How do you screen tenants? Things like that. So that's that's great. But I think we have sort of not mentioned the big one, which is the check comes every month. Oh, yes. We pay over $6 million to landlords in Hamilton County each month, which is a very large number. Um, We are the largest um, provider of housing assistance in Hamilton County. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that that actually brings up a a question that I received via text about the uh, the tenants portion of the rent, because it, it is it is very rarely the case. I've seen it every once in a while, but it's rarely the case that the tenant doesn't have a check that they need to send separately from the the check we're getting from Section 8. And sometimes it's really small. I mean, sometimes depending on what their income is, it, it can be 30, 40, 50 bucks. But sometimes we're put in the situation where we got the rent from you and we didn't get the rent from the tenant. That is a great question. Um, you would treat your Section 8 client or your housing choice voucher client or tenant just like you would your market rent tenant. So... With very few exceptions, um, if the tenant does not pay their, well, actually, in all, there is no exception. If the tenant has not paid their portion of rent to you, you can enforce the, the program. Um, I'm sorry, you can enforce um, your lease. So basically, the tenant has not paid the rent to you as an owner. So how would you handle that with a market rent tenant? Well, I would evict them, but typically I don't get. 85% of my rent and not the other 15% and then try to go to eviction court. I, I'm not sure what I would say to the eviction referee, you know. I Well, oh. you got to remember that the subsidy is not the tenant's portion of rent. So in this case, the tenant's portion of rent may only be $50. It may be $100. Um, we do not want landlords not to enforce the lease and then allow that tenant not to pay their portion because then you're accepting less rent than you should be. And then also, you are also setting a standard with that tenant. So when the tenant's portion, if there's an income change and our portions drop and theirs go up because they have more income, now you have set a precedence where they haven't paid you rent. So now that their portion's now $400 and it's not tolerable anymore to ignore that they haven't paid it, Mm -hmm. we get those calls a lot as well. And what it is is there's poor lease enforcement in in that situation. And we don't want that. We encourage landlords to enforce their lease. We encourage landlords to tell us when that scenario plays out so we can notify the tenant what, what could happen to their voucher. Because if you win an eviction for non-payment of rent and the tenant's portion has not been paid, then we unfortunately have to propose that family for termination from the program. So mm-hmm. we will partner with you to enforce your lease. We can't enforce your lease for you because we're not party to it, but we will um, enforce the program rules when you enforce your lease. Just like with a tenant, we will enforce the, the lease against the owner in cases where the owner is not abiding by the rules of the lease. Excellent. Let's go to line one and talk to Russell, who's calling in from Connecticut. Russell, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Uh, there was some point that uh, she mentioned, thank you for the, uh, that something about if the tenant passed, was it that if the tenant passed that it wouldn't be 30 days in notice? I didn't catch something in there. Yeah, so... so um, some some people are on Section Eight because everybody's on Section Eight because of their income, but there's there's right. there's, there's some folks who are on it because of handicap, age, things like that, and some of those folks might, you know, pass away. Mm-hmm. And Alicia, what were you saying about what happens if that happens? 
in a case where the only per- there's only one person in the home or mm-hmm. it's one person in a live-in aid and that person passes, say, for instance, I had Section 8 and, God forbid, I passed on October 2nd, we would only pay October because I was the only person in the home, so when I passed, there's nobody left in the unit. Right. All of, all of October till October 31st. Yes. Now, if I died okay. on September 30th, we wouldn't pay October at all. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Well, so, it's, a, it's a good program. Good good job. I, I hear now another question I have as far as the, I mean, I guess this all varies according to location and city as far as the, the, um, the, the standards of the, that the landlord needs to maintain of the, of the, the unit or the dwelling. Are there are there are there different standards in different areas, or does HUD pretty much tell you what the standards are? HUD gives you um, instruction. Um, however, there is some nuances to it, and there are some things that each housing authority could add to, or follow the letter of the law. But it's kind of one of those things that it says there should be no holes in the wall, and then it's up to right. the housing authority to determine what size hole is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, okay. is a hole in the wall where somebody put a thumbtack or is a hole in the wall where somebody put a brick? Would, yes. Would be the, would be the yeah, difference in there. In one case of one tenant I know of who had a, uh, something from something coming coming from uh, squirrels upstairs that was causing a, a stench, she said. I don't know how, but it was something. And it was getting them sick. Yeah, I'm pretty sure squirrels in the attic alone is probably a is probably a violation of the of the requirements for and and hey, I have squirrels in my attic, Russell. So I I get it. You can, you don't you don't control the little animals that can apparently fit through a crack the size of a dime. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean it, you got you got to fix that kind of stuff because if they call Section Eight, I mean you want to fix you want to fix it when the tenant calls you. Because if they call Section 8, that's going to trigger an inspection, even if you just had one. Right, right. And I guess this has to be something for if there's, particularly in cases where there's, where there's wheel, um, they need wheel, um, they're disabled and they need to, they need a chair lift or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I guess that all depends. Well, there's, there's okay. ADA regulations about that. And um, typically, and fair housing regulations about it as well. So... Uh, typically, if you, I think if you have a home that is handicapped accessible, you should advertise it as such because you're going to have a lot of people who can't find sure. that kind of housing. And if it's not mm-hmm. handicapped accessible and someone comes to you, at least here in Ohio, my understanding is you do have to make reasonable modifications. But if they are modifications that would, that would change the property, the mm-hmm. tenant ha- has to either has to either pay for them or at least if you're paying for them they have to escrow money to undo them if like like if you had to lower every countertop in your kitchen right. by two feet that is it's not only expensive it makes the house not livable for the next person who doesn't need you know three foot high countertops so they have to they have to have the money available to undo what you did but you do have to do it okay okay all right, sounds good. Look forward to seeing you at the end of the month. Yeah, we're gonna have a great time, aren't we? Yep. Everybody's like, "What are you doing, Dayton Russell?" No, he's talking. 
he's talking about the. No, 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 no. I'm talking about Oreo. He's, I know, I know. I just, it just occurred to me that somebody listening to the show the first time might be, who is this Russell guy? Uh, it's the, it's the National Real Estate Conference that's coming up at the end of the month here in Cincinnati. And I, I think I was out of town last week, and I'm not certain of this, but I think we might still have one of the discounted tickets from WMKV available at WMKVFM.org if you want to come to that. And heck, if you're a real estate investor and you're not coming to it, I don't know, like, what are you doing with that weekend? There's just, like, nothing more important than to come hang out with a thousand other real estate investors and learn about real estate and network. Uh, but WMKVFM.org, if, if the thing is still on the front page, then there's a ticket available and you can grab it. And it's um, somewhat discounted from what everyone else is paying right now. So thanks, Russell. I look forward to seeing you on Halloween here in Cincinnati. Um, so back to Alicia here. Um, I've been I've been writing down some questions. I've been being texted some questions, which I will I will get to when I um, ask you a question I already knew I was going to ask you, which is the deposit. Every, every, every in Ohio, you know, t typically we would collect a one month security deposit in like Connecticut, where Russell lives, it's often two months or it's first month and last month and uh, a deposit. So um, these folks are low income. Are we allowed to collect a deposit from them? You're allowed to collect the deposit that you would collect from a market rent tenant. Okay. Not more, not less. Ah, okay. So you can't you can't change the rule. <laughs> because, That's correct. <laughs> because they are on uh, uh, the Section Eight program. And can you talk about the screening process? Because you have a different perspective on this because you're working in that office every day and you get a zillion calls from people. My perspective is 100% from the side of the landlord. And I got to tell you, the most common misconception is either you're not allowed to screen. That is not correct. Tenants who are on, right. who are on housing choice. Or you guys screen them for us so we don't need to. <laughs> no. Um, a landlord, we screen for our suitability. You screen for your suitability. So you want to screen your, your Section 8 tenant or your Housing Choice Voucher tenant just like you would your market rent tenant. Um, on our side, we're looking for things that um, meet our requirements as far as they don't owe money to the housing authorities. They don't owe HUD money. They don't have a criminal issue in the last fill in the blanks how many months that your housing authority looks back. They don't have any um, things that the housing authority has prohibited in their plan. Um, with regards to what a landlord is screening for, that may be drastically different. Um, we have some landlords here in Cincinnati that won't rent to anyone who's had a felony, um, regardless of whatever the felony is. Um, so like somebody who has like felony child support, we wouldn't look at that because for us, that's not a violent or drug related criminal activity. Um, so that person would pass our screening, but fail the landlords. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Follow the fair housing rules, mm -hmm. right? Yes, as with, as with every screening you're going to do. And the, the income part of the screening doesn't really matter as much because, they're not they're only responsible for their part of the rent not for what section 8 is paying but beyond that you know if we don't if if we don't accept smokers because it's a multifamily building we don't have to accept a smoker just because they are in the program that is correct you do not okay 
All right, so got some questions here that came in via email. This one is from Lachelle in Indianapolis. She says, is there a standard lease time period like one year or two years? For Hamilton County, we ask for a one-year lease. Um, it can be renewable for each year. Um, if the tenant wishes to sign for two, that's fine. Um, we will, of course, accept a two-year lease. That just means the client's going to be housed for two years instead of one. Um, but after the first year, typically it goes to month-to-month arrangements. It's not unusual for our clients to stay put um, once they find a unit that they like for five, six years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lachelle has a second question. Uh, are, children, are tenants in charge of utilities? Um, it depends on your lease. Um, it works just the same as the market renter, except for one thing. In Cincinnati, we require that um, any utility that that family is going to be responsible for has to be metered to that same unit. So like in a house, the water is metered to the house. Mm-hmm. But it gets a little um, more complicated when you have a situation where you might have a four family and you have one water meter going into the building and you want to charge each unit for water. Um, we will not allow any like mathematical equations or anything like that to determine the water. We have to see the actual water. Actual usage. Yes. Okay. Uh, we need to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to finish answering Lachelle's questions. We've got some questions from a couple of other listeners, and uh, we will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. I am... Um, really, really glad that Alicia is here today from CMHA because I just got two questions that I I would have no idea how to answer uh, if you were not here. So uh, let's uh, go back to Lachelle had one more question, which was about uh, damages. And I think that's a, another super common one. Um, the question is, does the Section 8 program or the landlord decide which damages, if any, the tenant is responsible for? If there are major damages, can you evict? Um, the first part of that is when we come out to do an inspection and we get a, you know, if we're doing an annual or biannual, I'm sorry, or a complaint inspection, we will determine who is responsible. However, if it's a situation where there's a structural issue, if it's like um, holes in the wall, carpet issues like that, we will usually indicate that the landlord should fix that issue. And then, of course, the landlord could bill back to the tenant if they, you know, if they wish to. Um, they could also keep it from the security deposit. Um, we get a lot of complaints after the tenant leaves that there's damage to the property that exceeds normal wear and tear. And we advise our landlords here in Cincinnati that they seek a judgment. Then we will pursue the tenant and notify them that they have 30 days to contact the owner and get this issue resolved. Or we would propose them for possible termination from the program. Of course, they have a right to a hearing at that point and bring in their documentation, just like the landlord can bring in documentation to us. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to eviction, um, if the market rent tenant did the damage to the unit, you would seek eviction. It works the same way with a Section 8 housing choice voucher client. Um, if there is damage beyond normal wear and tear, by all means, you can evict. It's mm-hmm. a lease violation. And that goes back to the screening process, Michelle, <laughs> because you know, I've, I've owned rental properties for um, decades. I'm not going to say how long because then it makes me sound old. Uh, my experiences for the most part leopards don't change their spots and a tenant that when you call the prior landlord and they say oh my gosh she was wonderful she kept the place clean I never had any noise complaints she yeah there were some dings in the wall when she left but she did have three kids so who cares that's how they're going to treat your unit 
if the last landlord says, oh, my God, the door frames were ripped off and the windows were broken, that's pretty much probably how you can expect your unit to look when that tenant moves out. So it, that's that's as much a matter of, of putting the person in who's got a history of treating units well as it is, how do I collect after? It's better not to have to collect, right? A uh, question from Val, who I'm going to say is in Chicago, because the first sentence is I have a section. I had a Section 8 tenant here in Chicago. I had documented a documentable increases in expenses, water, and taxes, and wanted to raise the rent. The form required the tenant to sign the form saying she approved the rent increase. Needless to say, she wouldn't sign it. So what was the alternative? And I cannot speak for Chicago because each housing authority has their own um, plan that they follow and each way that they handle their procedures. In Cincinnati, you submit a request to us. You are required to give a copy of that request to the tenant. However, the tenant does not have a say in if you get that rent increase or not. It is totally driven by rent reasonableness after the family has been there. Um, You can only make one request to Cincinnati every 12 months, and that's after the initial lease is up. So you can't ask for an increase in the initial lease. Mm-hmm. So for that client who signed that two-year lease, that landlord would not be able to get an increase for two years. You know, I can't do that with market rate tenants either. It's really hard for me to go to them and say, oh, by the way, my taxes went up. So I know we said you were going to pay 1200 a month, but now I need you to pay 1300 You know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right, because you guys made an agreement. Exactly. Uh, another question just came in from Lachelle. She says, if you were to sell your property that was subject to a Section 8 lease, what does the new owner need to do if the lease is in place? And that's a that's a great question because that's happened to me. Right. So you would have to abide by the lease. Um, you can, um, in Cincinnati, you can submit um, a change of ownership packet um, that includes the documents I have contract. So you're well aware of the rules of the program. We will provide you any documentation for that family that we have. Once we get that that change of ownership information in, and yes, yeah, so when you know you're going to buy the house, you might want to start that process kind of early-ish. Find out what you need to do and so on, because well, if you wait until the day after you acquire it, you, you could that the rent is going to get sent to the wrong place if Section Eight doesn't know that they that there's a new owner, and it takes a little while to process that. A uh, question that came in by text from JC in Las Vegas. He says, my understanding is that in many places, tenants have to attend an orientation in person, often during a work week day. Is this still true? And is there some reason they can't be oriented online? <laughs> HUD requires that we do an we do a um, a briefing in person. Um, our housing authority, we brief on Mondays. That's just the day that we pick in our agency because we brief such a large volume of people at a time. So we traditionally pull people, um, we pull about 300 people off of our wait list a month. So you can just imagine the logistics of that. If we had to do it online or on the weekends or in the evenings, that means our whole staff would have to be on weekends or in the evenings. Now, there are a lot of um, things that, that the Housing Authority does try to do to help people who have jobs and things like that because, of course, it's an income-based program. The better they do and the higher their rent, we want to encourage self-sufficiency. The less half that we pay for one individual means that we can help another family. So it's a benefit for everyone involved, the tenant, the landlord, and CMHA. So it's a win-win-win kind of thing. 
Um, but with regards to the briefing, we are required to do a face-to-face -face, um, unless it's a reasonable accommodation for someone who's disabled. Um, and they do that so the client has the opportunity to be interactive with the housing authority and ask questions if they have it. So it's a really good setup for a family who's coming onto the program who's never had any experience with the housing choice voucher because you may be new as a landlord, they may be new as a tenant. So we have to educate them on all of our rules so they don't do anything wrong because, as I said earlier, it takes so long to get the voucher. We don't want to put it in someone's hands just to take it six months later. Mm -hmm. We want this to be... Um, a thing that they can enjoy and, and develop and, and go on and not have to worry about trying to figure out how they're going to pay rent when their income is low. And as as you indicated earlier, a lot of our clients pay rent even with the subsidy because mm -hmm. most of our clients work or they have a disability income or something of that nature, child support. So the families are participating in their rental subsidy. It's just in their rent, but it's just that we're making it affordable for them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's got to be tough, though. Like, if I, when I think about some of my my tenants who work jobs that don't pay a lot of money, it's hard for them to take a morning off work. It is now. What we do in Cincinnati, because we are aware of that, is we send out the letters two weeks in advance, so they know that they're they reached the top of the list. Finally, mm -hmm. they got there. Um, and then if they don't come in for that appointment, let's say they got, you know, they got the letter a week later, or maybe they like the rest of us, they got busy and they put their mail to the side. Mm -hmm. When they call in, if they call in and say, I can't make that appointment, their second appointment is already in the notes. Mm -hmm. So I kind of do a two week, two week kind of thing. So they have four weeks to, to get ready to come in. Um, we also allow them to choose if they don't have everything when they come in for that initial intake, we let them choose what one o'clock briefing they're going to come back to. So we do try to, to work with the families and try to encourage them, you know, to pick a time that works for them. Um, but again, it also has to be a balance between what the tenant needs and also what the staff can bring to the table and what the housing authority can do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we all need to lobby HUD to let you guys do this on video online and just make people take a quiz at the end to make sure they understood or something. I mean, I, I, like if I had to take a morning off and that would that would be tough. Um, okay, do you have any advice for Duran? I know we talked about this at the at the beginning, but he's writing from Detroit and he says, "Is there any way I can get my nephew on Section Eight? He's low income and apparently, I'm going to say he might be housebound." I know Daron can't just call up Section 8 and say my tenant needs it, but where, when people call and ask you this, where else do you send them? Um, well, again, our wait list is closed the majority of our time. So unfortunately, and, and I don't know what Detroit's situation is, but when we open our wait list, we open online. So we can reach the people who are homebound. We can reach the clients that um, may have trans transportation issues may be working all day. So if we only opened the wait list during the business hours, they wouldn't be able to apply. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how we've done it the last three times that we've opened the wait list. And a lot of housing authorities do it that way. There, you know, a couple years ago, there was the um, housing authority in, in Georgia that had a line wrapped around their building and they had people passing out and they had to call the police because when they shut the doors at the end of the business day, they had such a long line. People were upset. Could you mm -hmm. imagine sitting in line for all day and then being told you can't apply? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right. So for folks who are here in Hamilton County, Ohio, and want to get more information about becoming a Section 8 landlord, about the classes you offer, how would you have them contact you? Um, you can go to our website at www.cintimha.com. There is a calendar of events on our website, and we advertise any event that we're having, any training, as you mentioned, that we usually do in the summer. 
Um, we have Marketing Monday events there that you can sign up for. We have the landlord orientations that you can sign up there. Um, we also have our contact list on our website um, for our department, the Housing Trace Voucher Program. Ms. Taylor, who does the landlord orientation um, information, is there. My information is there. Um, and you're welcome to reach out to us. Again, landlords are in a great position for this program because unlike the tenants, they don't have a wait list. If you're willing <laughs> and able to rent a property, we are more than willing to take you. You got the tenant. Okay. So again, that's C-I-N-T-I-M-H-A dot com. And uh, yeah, go there for more information on the Cincinnati Metropolitan Housing uh, Section 8 program. All right. Appreciate you being here, Alicia. Thank you for having us. Got, got lots of good information. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.